Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, if you wouldn't mind opening them to the book of Matthew, chapter 14, uh, we'll be looking at verses 13 to 21. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles in the pew somewhere, um, we'll be on page 868. Now, in, in just over like 12, 13 hours from now, it will be the year, what year? 2024, right? That's amazing. Quick show of hands. How many people made New Year's resolutions last year going into 2023? Nope. How ma- okay, there we got some. All right, show of hands. Um, how many people kept every single one of those resolutions this year? Shame, shame. Uh, me, me neither. I did not. I started 2023 with all kinds of like fitness and financial goals, and I have miserably failed in keeping every single one of them, except for one. I, uh, the, the only resolution I was able to keep this year was my New Year's resolution to wear more cardigans, which, you know, a dumb resolution to begin with, but a win's a win. And if I'm honest, As I look back over this past year, I had a couple moments leading up to this new year where I just sort of sat there, uh, like feeling deflated, feeling like um, I didn't accomplish any of my goals this year. Is any of this worth it? Like my life feels so tiny and insignificant. Is it meaningful at all? Another year has come and gone. What's it all for? I feel like... Um, like two minutes ago, it was 2014 and I was dumping ice water on my head for the ice bucket challenge. And then I like blinked and it's a decade later and I've achieved like nothing. Life feels like it's flying by and I can't stop it. I, uh, I stumbled upon this quote by Tolstoy this week where he asks the same exact question of significance with just a pinch more existential angst. He writes... What will come of what I do today or tomorrow? What will come of my entire life? Why should I live? Why should I work or do anything? My deeds, whatever they may be, will be forgotten sooner or later, and I myself will be no more. I therefore realized that I could give no reasonable meaning to any single action or to my whole life. We can only live while we're drunk with life. As soon as we're sober, it's impossible not to see that it's all a mere delusion. Then he says, that's precisely what it is. There's nothing either amusing or witty about it. It is simply cruel and stupid. Now, Tolstoy is not someone that you'd want to have come speak at, like, your high school graduation, (laughs) right? You you can imagine a convocation speech of, like, listen, kids, might as well give up now. You're not going anywhere. None of you is going to make a history book, and the ones that do, you're going to be forgotten, and you'll probably make the book for a bad reason. Not the best convocation speech, but... But from one angle, it's kind of true. My guess is that you've all had thoughts like this, right? Maybe not on like a grand meta level of significance, but the thought of like, man, is what I'm doing with my life worth it? Is it meaningful at all? When the years tick by like seconds and my whole life is a momentary spark, how can anything that I do be truly significant? Now, Christianity 
like every major life philosophy, claims that they have, Christians claim they have the pathway to meaning and significance. Christianity claims that Jesus, right, God became who became a human, is the channel through which our lives can somehow gain eternal significance. We're not like left on our own to try to put a happy spin on nihilism, to imagine Sisyphus happy, that kind of thing. And what I want to argue in the time that I have with you this morning is this. If this story that we're about to read of Jesus is true, then Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the one to grant us significance. If what we're about to read about Jesus is true, then Jesus can give us what like dozens of happy relationships, personal growth, and a beefy 401k could never give. He's uniquely qualified to give us meaning. So I invite you to listen with open ears as I read again from this book that we love. This is Matthew 14, verses 13 to 21. When Jesus heard about it, He withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted and it's already late. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy some food for themselves. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. But we only have five loaves and two fish here, they said to him. Bring them here to me, he said. Then he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces. Now those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Will you pray with me? Father, as we approach your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would give us insight. Show to our minds and apply to our hearts the truth that Jesus is uniquely qualified to grant us significance in a way that all of the good things in our life besides him cannot. Do this for Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. Uh, so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at what this text, the story tells us about Jesus. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at four different things, four different ways that Jesus is uniquely qualified to give our tiny lives significance in ways that nothing else is. Okay, four things that Jesus does to give us significance. The first thing to notice about why Jesus can bring us significance is that Jesus is compassionate. Notice the whole context of the story, right? It begins by saying, when Jesus heard it. When he heard what? Well, if you bring your eyes like back up a few verses, you find out that John, Jesus' friend and his cousin, has just been murdered by a king for nothing more than a drunken party favor, right? This king, King Herod, is the son of the Herod that we read about last week. And this new king kills John, Jesus' friend and cousin, just because a party gets a little too wild one night. And Jesus hears about this, and he responds like most of us would respond. He grieves, and when he grieves, he wants to be alone. So he heads out and goes away to be by himself, and then it says, when the crowds heard it, 
right, that Jesus was leaving, they followed it, followed him on foot from the towns. Now, we've all had those days, right, when we are miserable, stressed out, exhausted, burnt out from life. Maybe you're grieving. What do you want to do when you have a day like that? Is it go and hang around thousands of like smelly, unbearable, pestering people? No, me neither. But Jesus, look at how he responds to how these people follow him. He just gets endlessly badgered, interrupted, and followed. And how does he respond? Verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. This should feel counterintuitive to us because you don't know another person like this, who when they're exhausted and miserable will delight in spending time serving strangers, right? I'm not like that at all. When I have a a horrible day, when I'm stressed out, what do I want to do? I want to like come home, plop my butt on the couch, turn on the TV, pour myself a tall glass of scotch and watch like 10 straight episodes of New Girl. Um, (laughs) Or if I'm like feeling up to it, Peaky Blinders. I don't want to go and hang out with insignificant, smelly people serving them. Jesus does. Jesus, in the middle of his exhaustion and grief, loves spending time with insignificant nobodies like these people in Matthew 14, like us. Someone that's not compassionate toward the insignificant is not capable of bringing about meaning to their insignificance because they wouldn't care enough to do it. But Jesus does. He is compassionate. Is that what you think of when you think of Jesus? He's not some celebrity walking about with a strut, annoyed of the paparazzi, just wanting to be left alone. He is drawn, like magnetically drawn, moth to a flame drawn to weak, wounded, and wayward people like us. Failed resolutions kind of people like us. That's the first thing about Jesus that makes him the perfect person to bring us significance. The second reason that Jesus is the perfect person to bring significance to us is that he is discontent. Not in the way that like sinful human beings are discontent, where they become restless, fidgety, uncomfortable, uh, and whiny, and just kind of a pain to be around. Jesus is discontent in a holy way. He's discontent with the way the world is. Jesus doesn't like look at our world and relax, put his head back and uh, kick, kick up his feet and say like, just as I like it, you know, income inequality. No, he looks at the evil in our world and hates it. He looks at the injustice in our world and he's discontent with it. He is dissatisfied with the current condition of our world. And I don't know about you, but I am too, right? Like when I look out at the world and I see the injustices done by governments and I see the disarray of politics or I feel like uh, the acute pointed pain in my own family that the holiday season brings about, or I look inward and see my own sin, I too am discontent with the state of our world. And Jesus feels the same way. You think of it like this, right? This is the whole reason Jesus bothers performing miracles in the first place. If he, if he thought the world was just as it should be, he wouldn't bother healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding the hungry. 
but he does because he hates the way the world is and the way sickness has affected it. He feeds all of these people because he hates that hunger has a place in our world. He feeds these people and in doing so, points backward to a time when before sin entered our world, there was no hungry person on the planet and forward to a time where someday he will come back and redeem everything and once again, there will be no hungry people on the planet. And in the meantime, Jesus' miracles show us that he is discontent with the hunger and sickness that our world faces. That's the second thing that makes Jesus the perfect person to bring us significance. Because Jesus is also not satisfied with the idea that your life is like a firework that just kind of explodes brightly in the sky for a moment and then fades into eternal darkness. He hates the idea of our lives ultimately meaning nothing. He wants our lives to mean something. He's discontent. The third reason Jesus is the perfect person to bring significance to us is because he is actually powerful enough to do so. So we've said so far that he has compassion on us and that he's discontent with the state of our world, which is great, but you could hypothetically imagine somebody, right, who is compassionate enough to want to do something about the world, discontent enough to perhaps try, but then fail in doing so. Jesus is powerful enough to actually be able to bring it about. Now, there's an interesting thing happening in our story, right? Like, obviously, Jesus is performing miracles. He's healing people, turning a few barley loaves into a feast for thousands. But there's something deeper behind this miracle that indicates an even greater power. Um, so in the Old Testament, where God's people um, were wandering about in the desert, God miraculously sent them bread, manna, from heaven to eat. And it's hard to not see the parallels to that in this passage, right? God's people... Helpless, unprepared, alone in the wilderness with no food to eat. And bread is miraculously provided for them. You have 12 tribes of Israel and 12 baskets left over. That's not a coincidence. There was this idea both in the Old Testament and in the culture of Jesus' day that when the Messiah would come, that he would again bring bread from heaven. And so uh, Second Baruch, right, a book that we don't have in our Bibles but was Um, written probably less than 100 years before this happened and the Jewish people of the day would have been familiar with. Uh, Second Baruch says, when the Messiah comes, those who have hungered shall rejoice. Moreover, also they shall behold miracles every day. And it shall come to pass at that time, manna shall again descend from on heaven and they will eat. In other words, by feeding these people, Jesus is doing a lot more than a cool party trick. He's feeding these people in a manner that imitates the manna in the wilderness and saying in narrative parable form, I am the God who brings bread from heaven. I was the God who did it in Exodus 16 and I am the God who does it in Matthew 14. He is powerful enough to make insignificant people significant because he is powerful enough to do anything because he is God. And here's like the, uh, the, the mind-blowingly awesome thing about this power. So zoom in on verse 16 here, right? If you look at that, his disciples are all worried about feeding these people. And they come to Jesus and say, like, hey, send them away to go get some food. They're going to starve to death. We're in the wilderness. There's nothing out here. And Jesus says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. I want you to just imagine being Jesus' disciples here. Hey, Jesus, people are going to starve to death. 
There's no Walgreens out here. Giant is pretty far away. You need to do something. You need to send them away so they get some food. And Jesus responds to them, you give them something to eat. You ever have a moment where it's like uh, maybe somebody with really dry humor and you can't tell if they're joking or not? You can imagine the disciples probably like kind of like nervously glancing at one another. Like, I can't tell if he's joking. Is he serious? John nudges Matthew like, you say something. I'm not saying anything. You say something. Is he joking? Well, I believe Jesus asked his disciples to help him feed the crowd for the same reason that I like, um, I ask my three-year-old daughter to help me make breakfast in the morning, right? Do I need her assistance? No, I, I am like perfectly capable of burning pancakes all by myself, I ask her to help me because I want to include her in the process. I think that's true for Jesus as well. He wants to include them in his power. In other words, Jesus is not only powerful, he wants his power to surge through his followers. He wants us to know his power, not just know about it. You could ask a similar question of like, why didn't Jesus create bread from the rocks? Why didn't he just create it out of thin air? This poor little boy comes to Jesus, the only thoughtful one in the crowd, who thought ahead of time about bringing a lunch, apparently, and brings his lunch to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He takes it from him. And he divides it into a meal for thousands. The reason Jesus doesn't turn stones into bread or make bread out of the thin air, because I think he wants to partner. He delights in partnering with a little boy and his lunch. He's powerful. He wants to partner with us in his power. That's the third reason that Jesus can bring us significance because he's actually powerful enough to do so. The final reason that Jesus is the perfect person to grant us significance is not only because he's compassionate, discontent, and powerful, but also because he is lavish. Look at how the story ends in verse 20. It says, they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now this is a ridiculous number of people, right? If there are 5,000 men, scholars estimate that there would have been at least 15,000 total people, perhaps upwards of 20,000, right? This is like if you brought everyone that lives in Midtown out into a field and then doubled the number, that would be approximately how many people are in this crowd. This is a massive crowd. That's a lot of bread, right? This is a feast for thousands of people. And after feeding all these people, they have 12 baskets, massive baskets filled to the brim with leftover bread. This is over-the-top, abundant, extravagant, lavish generosity. Jesus takes nothing and turns it into a feast. In Luke's gospel, we know that these are barley loaves, Barley is the bread of, like, the lower class. Um, Samuel Johnson says somewhere that uh, barley is that bread which in England is fed to horses and in Scotland sustains people. Um, it's, it's the bread of the poor people. It's the bread of the lower class. And Jesus takes that bread, partners with it, and proceeds to turn it into a feast for thousands. Is that what you think of when you think of Jesus? When you think of Christianity, do you think of a religion that says like, hey, just like obey some rules, 
don't do anything too fun and your life will be like not as fun as it could be, but at least you don't have to go to hell. Because that's not Jesus. Jesus is the guy who shows up at the end of the wedding feast, right? After everybody's already drunk with wine and had been drinking for days and then proceeds to make the best, most alcoholic wine and give it for free in abundance. That's Jesus. He gives in excess. He loves beauty and art. Like what kind of God, right, would create over 900,000 different species of insects? Why create trillions of galaxies and planets that no human eye will ever see? Because he loves extravagance. He's lavish. He loves making insignificant things, not only to become significant, but become extravagance. This little boy shows up to see Jesus with a lunchbox full of five barley loaves and two fish. Jesus takes it from him. This is a ludicrously inadequate meal for 15,000 people. And yet Jesus loves to partner with the inadequate and use it for his purposes. And what Matthew wants to tell us, what, what the Holy Spirit wants to tell us through this, is that Jesus wants to do the same thing for us this morning. Not with our lunches, but with our lives. The same Jesus who is compassionate, discontent, powerful, and lavish wants to do for our lives what he did for this boy's lunch. This boy came and gave Jesus all he had, and Jesus works miracles with it. So as our, our, as our year just kind of comes to a close, I would ask you, reflect on this. What thing in your life are you looking to that grants you significance? What thing, when you zoom out on your life and say, that thing right there makes my life worth it? What is it? Is it the money that you earn and the security that it brings you? Is it your family and the relationships that you find there? Is it the legacy that you will want to leave for your kids and your grandkids? What is the thing that makes your life significant? And I challenge you, Take that thing and compare it with the person of Jesus and see if Jesus doesn't offer a significance that beats it every single time. Jesus is the God who came to save us. He is compassionate toward us, discontent with the state of the world, powerful enough to do something about it, and lavish enough to grant us significance that lives in abundance. Will you pray with me? Father, as we leave one year and enter a new one, I pray that you would make the reality that Jesus grants significance ever more tangible to us. Apply it to our hearts and our lives in a felt way. Show us that Jesus is truly unique in terms of humans that have lived throughout human history and in terms of things, items, or ideas that are capable of granting us significance. Teach us to throw the weight of our identities and our meaning and our significance upon him and only him because he is the only one that can hold it up. I pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen.